0: Jeff Diamante is an Assistant Professor of Environmental Humanities, Cultural Analysis, and Philosophy at the University of Amsterdam. At the beginning of this podcast's run, I recorded an interview with Jeff uh, where I asked some very broad questions about the relationship between humanity and our natural environment. Here I had the chance to sit down with his new book, Climate and Capital in the Age of Petroleum, and ask more pointed questions about not only the claims of that book, but also the pivotal moment we're currently in, where, as he notes, we're still continually inundated with stuff drawn from the earth, but not encountered as such. We still, in the affluent parts of the world, experience the luxury of that sort of comforting disconnection of commodity from supply chain. But we also now face the mounting pressure of environmental collapse, and the knowledge that collapse will be the consequence of this disconnection where even post-industrial or digital capitalism is only coded in a language of intangibility while still necessarily relying on this dead matter to drive the system. We talk in this interview about how the pandemic has forced many more of us to attend to the material conditions that allow life to flourish. It matters that in an instant, what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism can be punctured in Diamante's terms and the possibility of system-wide change can feel within reach. Yet, at the same time, it matters that, you know, some of the most important methods of engagement don't automatically translate into a politics. Um, But Diamante says these methods of thinking and feeling are still vital pedagogically for encouraging a connection to what he calls the elemental alterity of the Earth. Part of this is based on an ethic of being a theorist who is also in and of the world. Who does make an effort to slow down and experience the overwhelming forces around him? Um, Who, you know, clearly works to ensure that the encounters that he's had in his research are informing his concepts and not the other way around. You know, Anna Singh's arts of noticing are quite a bit different, he says, from like the language of a world to win. It's less certain than that. Um, but yet quite powerful, potentially, for environmental communication. A problem I'll take up more in more detail, by the way, in my conversation next week with Imre Zeman. The hope, nonetheless, is to devise, I think, stronger questions and to work beyond the expected conclusions provided by frameworks that basically induce what Diamante calls an epistemological illegibility. When it becomes difficult to actually grasp the complexity of energy markets um, energy futures and which because of this illegibility leads to our current impasse the paradox of realizing we are cooking the planet for future generations of both people and non-human beings but we can't imagine real ways of correcting our course in the context of that profound blockage jeff likes to believe that an engagement with the elemental alterity of the earth can open things up that these massive and beautiful forces as as he calls them can provide a grounds for revolutionary imaginings um so you know his book is broken into two halves and he talks about the ways that these two halves are kind of you know arguing with one another so the first half is is a historical materialist account of of oil post 1970s oil is as he puts it elemental focus It's the tuning fork that unfolds the future. Um, The second half of the book tries to think through new elements that are conjuring the world. It tries to imagine what he calls contrapuntal ecologies in places like Greenland, uh, and a recursive process where one instance of exchange marks only a moment in a larger structure. Um, And he feels that these terminal landscapes are nominated to tell the story of the future but one thing i wanted to underline though is his discussion of this this faith in catastrophe itself and the notion that capitalism will end itself through a kind of terminal trajectory so he's pushing us to jettison the comforting idea that an end to oil will automatically arrive through catastrophic system failure um and and really is trying to pressure us to kind of ecologize our politics and make socialism more porous and mutable against prefiguration or dogma to try and build bridges in this urgent moment. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I will say that the very end of the conversation the audio is a little bit rough so apologies for that. I, I really wanted to begin um, as it were despite the complexity of your book by talking t- about the concrete elements of it um, and concrete itself is responsible for enormous amounts of, of carbon. But mm. you note in, in the book that the ecological realities projected by the IPCC uh, and this dramatic increase in energy re- use determined necessary by the EIA, uh, these two organizations, um, should be kind of chilling, right? Because rather mm-hmm. than decelerating or pausing or even more outlandishly trying to decarbonize, Um, you know, the globalized world is really accelerating toward these, you say, swirling toward these tipping points of indeterminate damage. Mm -hmm. Um, So like one of the astonishments, as it were, in climate and capital in the age of petroleum, Mm -hmm. is that this acceleration is happening as capitalism enters into what feels like this more informational or intangible, uh, idea-driven stage of its development. I want to ask, like, What's your sense of the basis of the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration's projection that um, the globe will need 48 percent more energy than it did in 2012 to support continued economic development? And is there any way of articulating the fact, you know, that even post-industrial capital requires more and more of this dead stuff in the planet to keep going? Like, do you kind of hope that readers will come away from your book with a sense that um you know there's there's a a deep paradox or or hypocrisy latent in the fact that global capital is animated by the mobilization of dead matter
1: yeah so so i i appreciate that question because it as you probably noted in the book is is one of the uh is an example of the kind of antinomy that i'm i'm trying to locate in concrete places all over the globe, so that 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 particular antinomy, in my understanding, is is worrying because what it what it names is the continued material needs of of a global economy that um, is of necessity growing exponentially every year, even during a moment of of uh, public health crisis. And that that growth has uh, roughly we could date this variously but but um at least since the industrial revolution that that growth has been predicated on a number of a number a number of inputs whose relations between are um are still kind of not very rigorously understood i think by economists and i'll say more about that in a minute but the so the so the the necessary inputs of course classically understood are are raw materials labor and capital investment of some sort and that investment either takes the form of money or um or fixed capital in the form of machines and buildings and so on um, and the the post-industrial period if we if we if we periodize it as uh, sort of in the wake of the 1973 oil crisis so of course it's already starting beforehand um in the night, late 1960s with with the switch to service-based industries In the united states but if we think about the post-industrial turn roughly in the you know early to mid-1970s um as you say that that turn is uh is coded in a a language of of intangibility immateriality service creativity and so on all of which is useful to get a handle on the composition of the labor market for instance and the nature of the kinds of assets that um that have determinant force over uh, uh, quarterly returns and so on. But the paradox is, is, is not, you know, you know, you don't, as you say, you don't have to really be a Marxist to note the paradox. You just have to be reading, uh, as the E I A R the, uh, the statistics coming out of, um, national reports. And the, so the, so the antinomy is, is by, by, I think it was, um, the U N E P noted that by 2018, the UN environmental program, Noted that by two eight, 2018 versus, two, versus 1970, uh, the globe had required something like, something like 10,000 or 10 tons of raw materials per capita on Earth um, uh, for economic growth to continue versus seven, seven, 7 tons per capita in 1970. So that's a, that's a massive surge. I mean, the, the abstraction is obviously a bit uh, grotesque. Um, and and it, it abstracts, you know, global population into a median figure of a single sort of liberal consumer. Um, but the but the point holds, which is just that like the material stuff that all of which invariably is drawn out of the earth in concrete places. The material stuff is is, is continues to be every year more and more heavy <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in order to underwrite this this turn to various kinds of immaterial and creative and um, yeah, industries that we otherwise um, put under the, the the umbrella term sort of gig economy, let's say, or communicative capitalism. And I mean, of course, I'm not, of course, I'm clearly, I'm not the first one to note this. But I, but my interest in this book is to think about how that bears on energy transition and what kinds of problems and and uh, impasses that that helps us see for, for a politics and ambition and discourse and uh, effort to transition local and regional and national economies away from fossil-fueled infrastructures. That's, it is chilling and it's troubling, and it, it's troubling for it, you know, a, a number of reasons. It's, 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 chilling, it's chilling, because first and foremost, I'm also not the first one to note this, of course, but the vast majority of, of especially the rare earth minerals that are required for renewable energy transition, of course, come from uh, mostly occupied and indigenous territories all over Earth and the the scram the scramble to um to survey and um purchase and then mine those those minerals such as in northern scandinavia and Sami territory or northern quebec or in greenland um is it's just beginning right like we're just on the cusp of this of this scramble for rare earth elements and that's going to the the further into an, a renewable energy transition on the terms that have been plotted so far, uh, largely by green capital, the further into that transition we get, the more displacement, dispossession, and um, uh, and s- forms of settler colonial violence uh, we'll see into the century. And that that should be chilling on it alone, independent of any other question. We're not even talking about climate yet.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's a question of making visible those things, which are... Um, real, like, lacunae for, for, you know, mainstream media. Like, it's just, you know, that, that projected future is not really perceived yet. And, and it's, in particular, I like your use of the term scramble, like that there is, mm-hmm. akin to the scramble for Africa, um, a kind of scramble to, to, to harness these new forms of energy, as it were, these rare earths that are going to drive um, a kind of future economy. But, you know, like, uh, I, I guess I wanted to um, sort of dig into this this uh, contradiction uh, that is kind of like on on its face, as it were, uh, uh, like apparent to perhaps the, the most casual reader of like the New York Times, that there's like mm-hmm. a, a gap between, um, for example, like non-fungible tokens, which are these like mm-hmm. immaterial new forms of commodities, these digital artworks that rely on on like blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies um a gap between like the sense of that as something novel and fun and 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 kind of like collectible and tradable and the actual like material resources that drive this new economy like mm-hmm. the, the new york times talks about how the process through which these nfts are sort of like verified right and how unbelievably damaging it can be, right? They say, according to an estimate backed up by an independent researcher, the creation of an average NFT has a stunning environmental footprint of over 200 kilograms of planet warming carbon equivalent to driving 500 miles in a car. So I want to ask in this context, as, as NFTs have kind of declined in popularity in some ways, if you think the media's concentration on that one thing is sort of like a just a distraction in the current moment, or if it's like an example of the sorts of energy intensive luxury digital goods that might need to be attacked and critiqued as a, as mm-hmm. part of a larger strategy of mitigation.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I know exactly the the genre of writing and the kind of expose explain, yeah. ex, you know, the exclamatory that you're talking about that runs through those, those kinds of journalistic practices. And I, I mean, I, of course, I think they're, 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 um, they're endlessly useful pedagogically, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it breaks something like the the this the sort of smooth self certainty of the liberal subject of reason. I think that when you read those kinds of exposes, so at minimum it punctures something like the clean story of transition. Um, but of course, on the other hand, it also it also it, it it picks its it it sort of implicitly picks its 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 winners and losers. And so then there's a kind of there's a kind of caricature, I think, in those in that story of NFTs and Bitcoin and so on and, um, and, uh, 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 and the mining of those, of those resources, uh, there's a caricature of the type of the type of person who participates in that, in that process. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's both, it's both racialized in some ways, uh, given the location of most of these mining practices, it's also like an implicit, I think there's an underlying kind of xenophobia, uh, uh worrying about non-sovereign forms of of um, uh, of currency mining and so um it, it, in that way of course yeah it is a distraction because I think that that the mining of of bitcoin and various kinds of yeah these kind of, these kinds of digital currencies or blockchain processes um, are of course part of a much larger infrastructure Um so I just wanted to kind of get, get, go back for a second as you were introducing introducing this topic and just and just sort of note that I, I, I so I I also at the same time understand the sh, the, the 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 kind of comportment that yeah. gets attached to this exciting new as it's termed exactly in the New York Times this new frontier of extraction right I get that cathexis that cathexis or investment in like both figurative and, and subjective investment and in the excitement and risk and uncertainty and experiment, the experimental nature of, of that corner of the economy. I do understand that because it extends, I think, from precisely the same kind of infrastructural forms of attachment that mark petrol culture writ large. Uh, one of my, my, my friends and colleagues, Stephanie Lamanager, in, in a wonderful book called Living Oil um in 2014 i believe this book was published gave uh, a framework for for recognizing and even in some ways sympathizing with in order to full, more fully critique precisely this comportment that gets attached to this the petrocultural subject whose mm-hmm. whose desires and expectations of return of growth of uh, benefit and a good life and so on are all bound up with with the, uh, the distributed affordances of infrastructures that are both very, very old and also emergent, but cohere as an infrastructural system. And I think that, yeah, this sort of frontier of mining is bound up exactly paradoxically with that same, with that same comportment, but at, an in, at a level of intensification that is easy to caricature. But is I think, um, so if just to answer the question about the, st- the sort of strategies of critique, uh and pol- and political strategy if if what we're talking about is is sort of building a more concerted um as concerted front that can that can more responsibly marshal a, a large-scale social and energy transition uh, note noting and then underst- and then having a, a sophisticated grasp of the ways in which all forms of or most forms of cathexis that are bound up with political desires are uh, are always going to be paradoxically bound up with how infrastructures that we rely upon to feel like the world is a world uh delineate certain kinds of narratives of progress narratives of of growth individually or collectively and so so in the book i'm i in the book i try to return whenever possible when i write myself into or talk myself into something like a corner i try to return to the like where the infrastructure is in relation to the concept that i'm tracking um, and for, so for, yeah, for me, that, that, that's kind of the, the politics of the methodology I'm trying to work with in the book is, is not to say that there's an infrastructural determinism to our ideas. Um, I don't think that. I do think that there is, a, I, I, of course, do think that the habitus or com, the forms of the comportments that, uh, that are gathered out of worry and concern for energy transition, social justice, environmental justice, racial, racial justice, and so on are both occasioned by certain kinds of infrastructural drives and could be better. Ad- My point is actually that they could be more fully addressed by centralizing the affordances of infrastructure and thinking of mm-hmm. social and, and and ecological and economic transition as first and foremost infrastructural transitions.
0: Yeah, I see that in the book. And it reminds me of you know, the argument by Wendy Liu in Abolish Silicon Valley, that it's or the Xenofeminist mm-hmm. Manifesto, that the argument isn't precisely against technology or against like inventiveness, Mm -hmm. uh, as such, uh, but about the, the ways in which closure and capture of, of technology has really limited the liberating possibilities of it. Like, I think this is why you and other Marxists, like, like Wendy Liu, um, are talking about labor, are, are figure, Mm -hmm. are, are making, are foregrounding the fact of, of human labor, um, in these, increasingly kind of immaterial uh, configurations. Like you talk about um, how the misrecognition of digital culture as immaterial uh, actually runs alongside the disfiguration of labor from its social ground. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot I think, to be um, you know made visible here. And I like in particular that you're concentrating on the question of infrastructure, um, because, you know, it, the, the emphasis in Imre Zeman's work, for example, on structural critique um, mm-hmm. is, is super valuable for getting us to a point where we're able to kind of zoom out and provide this, this picture of the whole. Um, and, as, you know, on that point, I want to ask about uh, the you know, variety of moments in the book where you're talking about what you term strategic choke points in the circulation mm-hmm. of energy and commodities that that term choke points comes up a lot. And you seem to be doing a certain amount of theoretical work with that term choke point, like the suffocating kind of implication of that and how, in fact, as you say, accumulation begets sluggishness. Um, I wanted to use this basically as a way of thinking about um, contemporary supply chain disruption. You know, Supply chain disruption is newly in the news. Um, I asked Natasha Leonard about the ever given, you know, uh, running aground in the Suez Canal, this seemingly random event that prefaces our current moment where there are these spectacular scenes of just a litany of cargo ships like marooned at sea. Mm -hmm. Um, Earlier, you talked about the grotesque nature of this sort of system. You know, I wonder if you could comment on the scale of waste within the supply chain. Like what, for example, have you learned from. The united nations environmental program about the level of inefficiency and waste in the system and you know what can we learn about the the absurdity of of this structure by thinking about perhaps the site of the terminal or the port which is so central to your book
1: yeah the the, there's you're right it's so interesting that in the last two years or so um there have been there have been these really spectacular again sort of punctures of the smooth reality of of a logistical system that uh, has been expanding and expanding and becoming quite rusted and sluggish and slow since since the late 1960s um, in the past two years so so the, i i i i read the the running of running of running to ground of the, of the ship in the suez alongside what happened on april 20th 2020 in the thick of the pandemic, which was, um, as most people probably remember, this sort of strange day when suddenly frontline news was that the price of oil had dropped to uh, to mm-hmm. below zero um, on most of the major benchmarks, and that was that was that was reversed very quickly, of course, and it, and it had to do with uh, with oversupply of oil and not enough consumers to to purchase that stuff. But it's an interesting kind of um, glitch. In what is otherwise a very large, heavy, fossil-fueled logistical system, where not over ninety percent of of consumer goods and commodities travel the world by, by in a shipping container before they reach before they reach market. And while I'm, while my book isn't so much uh, focused on on those consumer goods or commodities, uh, the, it's part of the story. Of course, the story I'm trying to tell is is sort of what happens to what happens to this thing called uh, oil when mm-hmm. it not when it is translated into oil at the point of extraction, nor when it is translated into emission at the point of consumption, but rather when it's translated into precisely a commodity in the terminal? Um, my my insistence in the book isn't isn't necessarily that this is the primary point of determination where the crude stuff the mater- the raw materiality of oil becomes takes on commodity form and therefore has to be disrupted there that's not exactly my point my point is instead that i have it that i i noted especially in in the conversations i was having professionally and personally in the energy humanities which is which is a research field that that um you've you've uh, invoked already in this conversation um that 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 the terminal as uh, as a space as a logistical space a logistical cartography was under considered in our theorizations of uh petroculture on the one hand and then energy impasse on the other and i thought that it w- i thought that this book would be useful for those scholars and also political allies for for two reasons um one because these spaces are while uh, largely invisible to a kind of cultural imaginary um, they're actually hyper visible and ubiquitous uh, in, in doesn't no matter where you are on earth the, the terminal is close yeah. by um, I'm I'm sitting in, I, I meant to situate myself a bit more uh, at the beginning of this conversation just for those listening later just to have a sense of where we are but but uh, I, I'm sitting in my my office right now in the University of Amsterdam I narrate this in the book too but I'm sitting in exactly that spot. Um, I'm sitting in the center of a a city that is completely um, built up materially and financially on uh, colonial expropriated wealth. And I can see over the skyline, which is fairly low here because of the UNESCO protected, uh, the the rules of of UNESCO, which protect the building height of um, the inner city. I can see a coal plant that was decommissioned two years ago. And right beside it, I can see windmills spinning as they Run along the eye River towards Mauda, which is the mouth of the eye as it reaches the North Sea, and this is a this is a tr- this is a terminal in technical terms and in conceptual terms. And anywhere you're sitting on Earth right now, listening, you, you're you're within you're probably within walking or or easy driving distance of something resonant with what I'm looking at right now, which is a place where uh, raw materials are uh set in storage in different kinds of facilities uh, both in reserve for the invariable and energetic needs of of a region on the one hand but also for in reserve for for on the for the purpose of uh speculation so um the price this gets back to this strange thing that happened on april 20th 2020 right like w- the price of a commodity like oil is determined by a a dizzying array of factors that are in tension at any time and moving, one of which is the future spot price of that commodity, which is an abstraction, of course, but it's basically how much investors are willing to pay at a deferred date. Um, And that spot price is, among other things, determined by how much of the oil is sitting in reserve in these terminals, right? So if, if 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 the storage tanks are nearly full, like in Cushing, Oklahoma, for instance, where um, uh, where most of the oil sits in waiting before it gets to port um, in the United States and, and therefore has a, a major impact on the the West Texas crude index um, uh, depending on how much stuff is sitting in those terminals right the this th- those who are speculating in London and in Chicago and in New York will have a sense of whether or not the market is going bearish or bullish and the spot price in the future will be dependent will be dependent on how much they think are in those are in those tanks so you can see the ways in which like the price of a barrel of oil which of course is is immediately plugged into all kinds of other economic metrics like um uh like monetary value of doll of the pri- uh, you know of the american dollar um of uh you know the pension rates and the relationship between that commodity and and adjacent commodities it ripples immediately once there's a fluctuation in the price and that fluctuation of price is not determined by the stuff that sits in the terminal but is recursive to it based on how it is read or interpreted at in various Mm -hmm. places on earth for speculation so um that so i i see the terminal as a unique kind of choke point that's very different than something like a pipeline where of Mm -hmm. course there is a lot of a lot of useful political attention right now i see it as different than a a a pipeline because it does it's not it doesn't take the shape of this sort of ubiquitous subterranean network like a pipeline does which makes the pipelines very difficult to locate and very difficult to sabotage terminals are really close to wherever you are and they're and they're and they are they're worked by labor on the one hand and they're also very close in terms of their zoning to residential spaces to warehouse spaces um, usually close to watersheds and so there's lots of different ways to contest what happens in those spaces Based on the concerns that align cartographically with the terminal, and so politically, I think they're very useful for that reason. Also, again, because they seem to—it seems to, to me, to be the place where the where where oil gets uh, abstracted into commodity form and financial form while it retains its crude form. Um, just to say one more thing about your question about waste and heaviness i mean mm-hmm. I, I i'm not sure i have to think more but that's a really good question i guess i think if i think about this more probably because i'm i'm really inspired and and um have learned a lot from my research partner amanda Butzkus, who i did a lot of the greenland work with um and amanda man has a really rigorous theorization of of uh, expenditure um and ec- economic and material expenditure which is based on among other things in her in her strong and sustained reading of George bataille um, in the accursed share and I, I I tend to agree with her that it's it's that the the question of waste while a, a useful a useful category to think in terms of t- in terms of like a contestation of the um, of the story of of accumulation is right. also it also maybe misses something about the ways in which that waste is actually from the standpoint of capital, like not wasted at all. It's just spent, right? It's like, Hmm. it's spent fuel, it's spent energy, it's spent investment. And it's the very, it's the very ontology of capital uh, to continue to expend more and more and more um, independent of or with...
0: This idea of capitalism as like an externalizing machine, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Which is like... yeah, I, you can think about it as Marx does, like as a furnace, right? Like it just you, you just you just pump it h- harder and harder with more and more stuff until it gets until it, it's just ro- roaring, and then that roaring becomes a site, a basin of attraction that requires more stuff to be fed into it. Wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a perfect kind of metaphor in many ways. And when we, you know, you think about, um, you know, uh, a disaster like the. You know, the 2020 Beirut explosion in August of, of 2020, you know, that's, that's about mm-hmm. um, an explosive making visible of a port that had just like, um, you know, uh, abandoned this, this explosive substance uh, in, in its kind of fixed commodity form, had literally solidified and become more hazardous over time, and had been ignored or, or uh, sort of disguised and forgotten until it detonates. Um, right. This, this right. is, I think, the kind of logic of this roaring furnace of capitalism. Um, and maybe waste doesn't tell the whole story of that. I think entanglement, in some ways, sort of tries to. Like, it, there's this like emerging discourse through Anna Singh and Alexis Shotwell and many others of entanglement. You know, Judith Butler's The Force of Nonviolence also invokes this concept over and over again. Um, and it seems to me your book mm-hmm. is trying to develop a, a pretty unique way, in some ways, of, of like. Thinking entanglement um, is something that is, in many ways, both abstract and material, social and economic. So you're, but the term that you use is, is this notion of like a contrapuntal ecology or contrapuntal ice comes up. Um, this this notion of um, point counterpoint being the kind of technology through which um, you know vast mm-hmm. reservoirs of of energy are uh, mobilized. And like you, you mentioned, this coal plant that was decommissioned that you can, you know, still see um, in Halifax. Like there are m- many depictions um, of our apparently iconic candy striped smokestacks. Um, but, you know, a few mm-hmm. of the people who enjoy these images, which, you know, evoke a sense of home rather than, you know, disposability or waste, uh, actually know what they're looking at. Right. And you talk about how your students mm-hmm. also can't quite say what this this the Hemweg eight coal plant uh was or did mm-hmm. similarly i think you know people don't aren't aware in halifax of the fact that this is the Tuff co tufts Cove, tufts Cove ge- uh, thermal generating station uh constructed in 1965 and you know requiring the demolition of part of a historic neighborhood um and and so like to quote you there's a way in which the energy infrastructure here is neither invisible nor out of sight and so there's this like ahistorical disconnection of the social landscape from infrastructure, um, and I wonder like do you see that as a as a crucial way that fossil capital sort of perpetuates itself in some ways, um, and is it you know is that uh, um, kind of ahistorical disconnection also kind of bound up with what what a couple times you refer to as like the category error? of like colonial critical and liberal epistemologies. Like there's a way in which that that category error of kind of displacing certain environments from our consciousness is at the root of so many of these Mm. problems. How can interrogating those categories open up progressive ways of mediating the climate condition?
1: I'm not sure, I don't know how to translate this into a political practice, I have to Mm. admit. Pedagogically, I've found this very, very useful um, with with my students at the University of Amsterdam, uh, in cultural analysis and in philosophy, and so I think it begins with a kind of a simple exercise, right? I learned this. I learned about. I learned to think. Of, I think this way from my friend Keller Easterling, who teaches uh, uh, architecture at Yale. And <clears throat> excuse me, who who in a in a in a in a class that she taught in BAM a number of years ago that I attended, she asked us all to to sort of close our eyes halfway and to look at the world through this kind of squint Mm. right to see through bifocals as it were like um, multiple kinds of infrastructures and processes converging into object form everywhere we look Mm. and then to think about that object form as a kind of palimpsest of various of various kinds of uh potentials futures, and also past congealed into that form. And and Keller's interested, I think, more generally in moving away from the object form of architecture for her purposes and moving towards something like a, like the processes or active forms of logistics in her work, Extra statecraft. Uh, and I took that, I, I was quite inspired by that uh, pedagogically. So I asked my students to do the same thing, is just to, to look at a day in their life in a city like Amsterdam but you can do this anywhere and to just think about all the ways in which they come into direct contact with infrastructure uh various infrastructures transportation uh, waste energy infrastructures as they move through the city and feel like the world is a world to them a world that they can expect to be the world and to act the way that it does when they interact with it and then just to become conscious of of those processes um to raise them into into the terrain of consciousness and then to second, there, and the second step is to recognize the ways in which their own form of self-consciousness is contingent on those processes, on those infrastructures. And we know that, of course, from Susan Leigh Star's work, but also our own experiences. I think of when when infrastructures fail. Um, I mean, I take Brian Larkin's uh, critique of Susan Leigh Star's insistence that we only know infrastructure when it breaks, and I, I, I there's something to But I still think that like, it is true that something happens to consciousness when infrastructure fails, right? Suddenly you, you go to switch on a light switch and it doesn't work and you're then, then like the world rushes in as a flash paradoxically, because it doesn't happen. Like there are wires connected to this thing and those wires are connected to some sort of, you know, voltage box and so on and so forth all the way to an energy plant. Um, and so pedagogically, I think it does invite an analytic that is immediately and of necessity, both material and materialist, but also historical and historicist. So suddenly, like your experience of something as banal as jumping on a tram or making a phone call or sending an email, uh, suddenly those things are bound up with with a world, a, a world that is coherent to you, legible, because of the interconnection of various kinds of infrastructures both conceptual infrastructures and material infrastructures um and so yeah i just i don't know how to translate it into a politics necessarily on uh, in 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 my given my current thinking but but i do think that pedagogically and analytically it's it seems to me just self-evidently um imperative that we incorporate some of these kinds of modes of thinking and seeing and writing into our into our uh, our research practices and 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 in ways I'm not sure how to translate yet into our political practices.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you know uh, on that point, I guess, of like translating this you you know this thing this this practice of ex- experiential learning that is useful pedagogically uh, into something like a political program does seem like an incredibly difficult uh, conundrum, and and you know I think. Latent in that response is this idea that we shouldn't assume political radicalization uh, will result from these like, you know, potentially transformative moments of just noticing the complexity of your environment. Um, but like that said, there's this interestingly almost utopian moment at the end of your book's introduction where you argue that abandoning an anthropocentric concept of the social um, which would be part of like this practice of sort of squinting at the world, you know, uh, 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 that abandoning that anthropocentric concept doesn't mean losing with it the will and promise of socialism. And, and so there's this mm-hmm. articulation, if only briefly, of a post-human socialism um, that coheres, mm-hmm. as you put, in, in its critique of and redistributions of capacities through infrastructures. When you envision a post-human socialism, Uh, Are you kind of imagining it in terms of the language of, you know, having a planet to win the sorts of things that we have to gain? Like in that moment, I was reminded of so many eco-socialists and how they're insisting that we really try and promote decarbonization, energy transition, uh, uh, moving away from fossil fuels in terms of what we have to gain. Right. Rather than all of the losses, Mm. you know, that are these limits, basically, that are mandated by the climate emergency. Um, you know, I, I yeah. suppose, yeah, like, do you, th- is it part of that sort of political program? And do you think that has a certain amount of power, uh, to resonate maybe with people?
1: I hope so. I mean, mm. I, I'll say a couple things, but that maybe I'll just, for those, for, for listeners who, who presumably most who haven't taken a look at the book, I'll just say that it's, it's kind of split in two parts and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a, a schizophrenic exercise. Um, so the first half is really a, a historical materialist account of the post, basically the post nineteen seventies story of oil and how it underwrites the things we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take I take oil as my elemental focus for that first part, and it and so it requires a recursion back into sort of Marx a Marxist account of how oil becomes oil in the world and what it does. Given the apparatus that solicits its affordances, the second half of the book splits, and it, it really takes up what probably will feel to most people like us a, a more new materialist approach. Um, and I, that, that there's reasons for that, but I would say more than new materialist, I'm trying to then continue the thinking in part one, but with different elements at hand to to conceive of and conjure the world. And I so I move through I, I move through ice. Um, in 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 the second in the second part in a chapter called contrapuntal ice and uh i'm also interested in um water and melting water off of the greenland ice sheet and i'm interested in solarities in the third in the third chapter of the second part um and i'm doing that because i'm i of course i'm inspired like so many people to to alter our modes of attention and attunement as researchers and as subjects in the world which is a kind of ethic i I take seriously from people like anna singh Mm -hmm. and so many others um and i want to i want to practice that and learn from that mode of being with nearby and in the world that doesn't immediately translate everything you see into ready to hand categories of contestation that we get from historical materialism i just want to basically slow down and practice a slightly more elemental approach that allows for the various kinds of and massive and beautiful forces that surge through any moment on earth that situate your body in a place, in a landscape, um, I want to be able to pay attention to those and learn from them and not render them categorical. I want them to be experiential and phenomenological, and I want moreover the alterity of those forces, The 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 parts of those forces that are withheld from my knowledge in the ways that I experience them to inform an ethic of research and more generally an ethic of being in the world and so when i talk about a, a when i talk about retaining this category of socialism but like a posthuman socialism i'm in part asking i'm in part asking like my comrades uh you know like my marxist comrades to come with me and learn with me about how the the earth itself is compose of a whole range of interconnected dynamics that are other to our understanding of them that that extend beyond our understanding of them and of course a post-human socialism for me like i i don't want to i don't want to like give up on socialism but i do want socialism to become infinitely more porous to the yeah. worlds that it struggles for as opposed to imagining that the world is a static concept and uh, and t- and terrain and a background to struggle i take seriously that like if, if we're going to ecologize our politics in, in the face of massive climatological catastrophe, if we're going to open ourselves to, to that world, then it also means opening ourselves to being altered by it and opening our categories, um, of political subjectivity, um, of ally of kin, um, to, to the, to the radical alterity, precisely of what we cannot prefigure in advance. And I, I mean, yeah, so I, I I want to retain that, and that's what I'm trying to work to towards. You know, I'm really I'm really inspired by people like Michael Martyr, um, who has been, written a number of books, philosophical accounts of botanical and vegetal life. Uh, one in one in particular with um, with the, the great elemental philosopher and feminist thinker Lucy Rigorai. Um I've learned a lot from them in terms of how to translate my own sense of ethics in relation to an other that cannot be conjured in the reflection of myself because it is non-human and and in some cases not even non-human is also like in some cases non-living like with with elemental forces and so this might you know of course like the 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 marxologists and sort of like old misogynist marxists in the world will probably think this and think it's it's complete garbage that that this is a this is nonsense there there is a world to win because we're losing it right now we should get back we should cut the shit and get back to business organizing labor and i Whatever they can do, that, that that's their prerogative. But I think that there's, I think that the this question of a world to win is not. It, I get the impulse behind that discourse, right? There's there are many as many opportunities and promises in political struggle as there are anxieties about what is not possible and what's been taken away. I get that, but I just think that like if we if we already have a prefigurative notion about what some kind of um, revolutionary overcoming of the existing contradictions that continue to carry us into this awful storm um if we already have a prefigurative notion of what that's going to look like then i just think we're going to be repeating old habits and old errors um and we're not going to get anywhere but if we're actually open to like a fundamental encounter with alterity on terms we cannot possibly prefigure because that's the point of alterity um, then that seems actually really exciting to me. And also more able that kind of disposition to me seems more able to align with and learn from and struggle with not on behalf of, but with those that as socialists, we might not otherwise recognize as allies. I'm trying to work towards that in the second half of the book. And I'm still, I'm still learning how that works and I, I definitely have failed. And that's a, I want that to be okay. Like, uh, I'm trying to bridge two very different traditions and create what I call in the book an ecumenical materialism that doesn't end conversations, but actually makes but actually opens them up. Because I, I have to say, with I, I've seen a lot of bridges burned in the past ten years or so on the question of on the question of agency, materiality, the non-human, and um, and I'm not I don't I I I, I want to. I want to be part of a project that helps build bridges um and and work towards exactly as you put it a, a world that is that is there that is there to be re, to learn there to be learned from and also inhabited and um and practice with that that certain traditions i'm i'm more familiar with and comfortable in such as a kind of marxist historical materialism has traditionally not been so good at thinking and opening itself up to
0: right um, and, you know, I mean, there's so much to uh, build off of there, but this idea that there's, you know, polarization um, and and maybe a, a kind of uh, self-destructive polarization uh, within these kind of left discourses of eco-socialism is really interesting and and something that I think is is definitely, um, you know, fraught to even discuss in some ways. Right. Because. Uh, because of the kind of urgency of the problem that we're confronting, there's a, there's a way in which, you know, uh, these more open-ended questions um, are, are seen as somehow off-base, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, and I think, you know, you're modeling then a different approach to complexity in the book and to uh, being open to, um, you know, a, a radically other future where we've decentered the human to some extent, and you talk about in the book how like you made the decision to um, let the dissonance sustain your thinking and you've kind of been addressing mm-hmm. that already, um, you know, talking about the kind of the kinds of uh, necessary failures that kind of compose the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also uh, and you have mentioned the term a couple of times, an emphasis in the book on the need for recursion to, quote, mm-hmm. fully articulate the entangled futures these terminal landscapes reveal. Um, and I wondered if you could kind of uh, define the notion of recursion, like in you know, math and computer science, at least it's about simplification. Um, do you feel, I mean, you've kind of been arguing the opposite in some ways, right? That, but I want to ask, like, do you think that simplification is in some ways the necessary first step to decoding petroculture? How might a concept like energy deepening which is a thing that you describe as the naturalization of fossil fu- fueled futures um how does a concept like that maybe do the work of recursion for you
1: yeah yeah so i think about rec- I, I i learned to think more seriously about recursion from from the anthropologist Ann staller and installer is, is thinking about recursion in terms of what she calls colonial duress that repeats and echoes and reverberates through different kinds of practices, archives, bodies, languages, and so on past the point of point past the eventual moment of its inception into the world. Um, so I wanted to think about a recursive practice or analytic that is, um, is a is alert to the the intimacy but moving relation between something like figure and ground so we can think about this again back to sort of you know like a you know the relationship between something like an oil spill on the one hand and then the the massive distributed infrastructure that that promises that oil spill in advance of it happening and then reading the oil spill not as an event but as but as an instance of the structure right and so then the attention become the attention what what recursion asks of us is an attention to the ways that those two things are in constant relation um but then there's a second cadence to this that i wanted to sort of develop which is uh, uh what i what i think i, I yeah the contrapuntal uh, effort of this book which i take from edward Said, um but try to ecologize it um is is an insistence that the terminal as a space that does work in the world and abstracts matter into something like commodity form, but also ecological futures through the work that it does, um, ask, asks of us a, a reading practice that sees, the, uh, the, the, sees various kinds of scenes and agents and landscapes as bound up, not just conceptually, not even just cartographically, but materially and logically with what happens at the terminal. So the Greenland Night Sheet is my other main object of this book, where I spent quite a while, um, because, of course, it is termed the terminus. It's the ground zero, as it were, quote unquote, of the Holocene. That's where the Holocene terminates. And so it is studied and and questions are asked of it and futures are projected on its back because it is understood as a terminal, because it's understood as a place where matter is held in waiting and the, that matter primarily the ice sheet itself, and then what's locked underneath it, which are various kinds of hydrocarbon reserves and rare earth uh, elements, are uh, promise various kinds of futures, right? So right. the so the recur rec, the recursive structure structure spills into something like a contrapuntal reading practice. Once I once I move away from oil as my prim- primary element, um, and that's why I say the book starts to feel like a bit schizophrenic because it's back it's reading these two sites off of one another and 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 I'm trying also as I'm standing in the port of Amsterdam and then standing at the terminus of the Greenland ice sheet to speak and write in a style that is situated that is mm. that is uh commensurate with what I'm seeing and feeling and learning and those languages are different and so
0: and the reader feels it i have to say
1: yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, I I wanted mm-hmm. I, I wanted that to be true for the reader because it was true for me as somebody standing and thinking in those places and learning from them. Um, and so, yeah, recursion becomes. I think it's 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 both a, 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 for me, learning from Ann Staller, who in turn is is sort of thinking it in relation to Foucault. Um, it is a way of thinking the past and the present without insisting on the dislocation of those two things Mm -hmm. the uh the ways that the that the past expresses through the the structures of knowledge the epistemic insistences and violences and materials and so on of the present um but then also helps me get to a point where i can try to propose this contrapuntal reading practice between between geographies histories and uh processes that are that i think have to of course have to be thought together such as this kind of activity that happens in a in an energy terminal on the one hand and the world that it imagines for us um, and also makes impossible on the one hand with the worlds are imagined promised and made impossible
0: in a place like Greenland. And, you know, in, in Halifax, which, you know, is, is in certain spots, a very walkable place, there is still um, a fetishizing certainly of the, of the car as a, you know, uh, means of mobility, but uh, even self-definition and and like the ways in which rural and urban is, are connected in Nova Scotia, it really relies on that mobility. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm mostly um, concerned, but I do, I think, you know, there, there's a, there's a moment in your book where you talk about wanting to avoid uh, what you term the catastrophism of eschatology, um, you know, this like anxiety that comes with having to actually confront the end of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And and you you seem to be suggesting that there's a reason that catastrophizing is a a dominant characteristic of these ideology critiques of fossil fuels. Um, Mm -hmm. Like there, there's some reason that catastrophe is like still a dominant discourse. And, and I wonder like from your perspective, what you might feel is um, obscuring about this catastrophism and why you wanted to avoid it, you know, like is it is it blinding to think in terms of catastrophe? Yes, I I do think that. so.
1: I basically got tired of reading my friends' books um, and colleagues and comrades' books who began invariably with the same opening paragraph, which was a which was a, a litany of all of the ways in which we're fucked, and we are. But and it's not it's not my my I'm not I, I'm not I'm actually not very. Um, positive in general in my life as a subject but it wasn't like a reaction in terms of the the, the, the tonality of that i just thought so my the critique of eschatological catastrophism in the book it it's supposed i mean i'm trying to i'm trying to make two different kind of arguments here that the first is that analytically it's um it produces it produces a kind of fatal inevitability to the conclusion of the epoch of fossil fueled modernity that we are situated in of course it's it can be depoliticizing that's one problem with it but what i'm trying to say is if you there there is a there's a there's an a discourse especially within especially within traditions informed by marx that turn their attention to climate that um i notice w- were routinely um insisting that that eventually capitalism would would become its own grave digger and would either exhaust its resource base or eliminate the livability of its of its of its terrain. And so even if even if like um, the a political front failed to stop the ongoing exploitation of, of fossil fuels for the sake of capitalist growth, even if we failed, eventually it, w- it would, of its own accord, the planet would 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 be the arbiter of justice. And so, if we if we fail, we can also just wait, and capitalism will conclude. That I just think is categorically off and a bad politics because it leads to either moralism, or escapism, or even worse defeatism. Neither of which are very good positions from which to initiate a politics of relation, a politics of. Um, Distributed resource, a politics of care, Um, and I just think also it's analytically wrong. And this is the point that I'm trying to make about the 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 sort of the valences that attach to the concept of the terminal. The terminal, I'm trying to treat it as a concept that 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 shows us the concept itself shows us the ways in which a terminal is not a conclusion to something. It's 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 a the terminal is something between states, right? It's the moment when It's the moment when one process is held for a moment as legible and then translated into another moment. So I I just think it's a unique moment to see the legibility of something like interactive totalities um, in figural form. So what I mean by interactive totalities, I mean like I I introduced the distinction between a a planetary focus and and a global focus. And... Uh, what I mean by that, I'm 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 trying to develop this uh, this this argument that that Spivak makes a number in a number of texts stretching back to to the late 1990s, and then elaborated more fully in her book Death of a Discipline, where she insists that planetarity is is, is both about like the terrestriality of this planet and the ways in which, as a geological and biological entity, it extends beyond any categories we have. think identity and that is to say what it is and how it appears it extends beyond that and therefore she says it's a it's a species of alterity that we ought to learn from and and orient our thinking towards so it's basically i mean it's 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 a it's a wonderfully complex argument that she's that she develops but i think in terms of an ethics and an orientation towards the the genres of totality that we might that are always lurking behind any thought of necessity explicitly or implicitly it allows us to see the ways in which this other kind of totality that i you know from from the 1980s onwards we've i think critical theory is largely renounced in the name of a kind of like waning of meta-narratives and an anxiety about the very category of totality namely capitalism modernity they're interactive in really interesting ways and i think the terminal is the place where they interact most most visibly and so to get back to the question of like why a, a an eschatology is not the right way in my mind to approach um to approach the interaction of these two totalities is because it because they they're, they will not stop interacting of their own accord. I like, I just don't think it's a good place to start to assume that eventually either through agitation or through its own internal logic capital will will run out of its own capacity to build a war, world through abstraction. I I don't think that, that, that that's true. I think it needs to be interrupted and then rethought internal to its own logic.
0: Right. This and, and Darren Barney talks about the rise of a kind of saboteurial subject that has this like insider information on the ways in which terminals like operate and how that kind of needs to be um, harnessed as it were. And and yeah, I mean, in the conclusion of the book, you, you're taking issue with this exact kind of uh, assumption. The capital will somehow exhaust itself and, um, and that, as you put it, the planet will somehow be an arbiter of justice. I love that phrase um, because, you know, it's taking issue with this idea that the elemental power of nature will just somehow automatically subsume capitalism. And you, you not only call that bad politics in the book, but even nonsense, because like you, you're, you're pointing out, like uh, um, even the IPCC, which provides now one of the most prevalent genres in some ways of future authoring or intimation, also predicts a world that remains flush with capital. Um, and so you raise the question, like, what if ongoing extraction doesn't suddenly cease, but instead increases in intensity over the next century? Um, you're really you know, trying to push us to jettison the comforting nature of just assuming an end of easy oil will mean the end of oil. Um, and I guess I would ask, like, why is it so fraught to operate in terms of we win or we wait, as you put it, um, you know, maybe the answer is like a straightforward question of how we're, you know, swirling toward tipping points, but I'm interested to hear you elaborate on this point.
1: Well, yeah, so so it, it it's I I I'm worrying about that um position, both because I think it's because I think it initiates a a, a, a really defeatist and depoliticizing standpoint that is not useful in this moment, but also because um, it misses the ways in which it, so the ideology critique of capital as it's linked to extractive processes is of course useful, I think for just sort of, um, uh, for insinuating an alternative politics. I think an ideology critique is useful. And of course, it, it, you know, ideology critique does not necessarily just mean like discursive fictionality of a real condition. It means like an interactive, an interaction, an interactive fiction with material realities that perpetuates that reality. Um, but my i think that there's as a consequence of the the scale of ecological crisis that has now entered into various kinds of critical discourses that scale has in some ways obfuscated what in the marxist tradition is the insistence on an imminent critique of the very logic of capital as it's written and as it writes itself and in my reading of contemporary capital and its capacity to world build through not just exploitation but also through extraction and then translation of those materials into themselves and forms of forms of um, what I call modal abstractions there's nothing internal to the actual material itself this is this is this is maybe a paradoxical argument but I want to just repeat it because I'm I I I, I Yeah, I mean, I'm actually interested in maybe having this position critiqued, but I want to hold to it for a moment. Um, I'm insisting in in the conclusion that there's that there's nothing internal to the oil itself as a as a chemical entity, as a set of bonded chemicals. There's nothing internal to the signature of that stuff that then of necessity carries over into the modal abstractions of capital world building. Right. There's something really violent that happens in terms of the materiality that gets plugged into the furnace. Versus the structures and narratives and potentialities that come out the other end, and so while of course capital could very reasonably switch to other forms of input, other forms of resources, other forms of energy, um, I you know I, and, it, and it already is and it, and it very well it very well could continue to do so. Um, uh, the the kinds of the kinds of divisions and social violences and di- forms of dispossession um, and destitution that internally mark the organic composition of capital as it has been initiated since the industrial revolution. I don't, I don't see any reason why a shift of resource would change that internal logic. Nor, of course, do I see, as we talked about earlier, any reason why the ex- exponential growth and material base that capital continues to to draw out of the earth from the 1970s until 2018, according to the UNEP, why that's going to shift suddenly, unless there is a there is a, a, a an intervention, and that intervention could take many shapes, of course. But to intervene means means first of all to a, imagine that it's possible and necessary to intervene, right? And so the defeated position, which is that capital will run out of its own resources eventually, and so we can also just wait, means that there's no reason to conceive of the logic of intervention on uh, internal to the to the very nature of capital itself, um, and so. I I just think it's so strange to me that with that with there are exceptions of course it's so strange to me that there's not a lot of discussion of uh, of of massive resource redistribution right now as a solution to this earlier problem we were speaking about which is the materiality of growth or or energy deepening um, that in other words like moving moving the kinds of moving the the, the energy base. Away from one kind of a, a, a way, one kind of logic in history towards another that we tr- that you know in terms of renewables um, I don't understand why it's so difficult to imagine I guess I do understand why I don't but it's hard it's hard for me to grasp why it's so difficult to imagine redistribution of wealth responsibility and burden as the solution to energy impasse versus the technological um, uh, conundrum that seems to own that that is only really addressed by way of something like geoengineering or a new phase of violent settler colonial dispossession as we talked about earlier in indigenous territories like it just seems so strange to me and and, and frustrating you know that like um that the techno utopianism it still manages to win out every time and then the the alternative to that is like uh this kind of flippant notion that like capital will run out of its resource base anyways and so we'll be fine even if we don't win
0: yeah and you know it really represents a kind of impasse i i I agree and one where like it 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 becomes necessary to make certain alternatives like thinkable i mean i think of Kara daggett's book the birth of energy and how it takes up kathy week's anti-productivist kind of anti-work politics and applies it to decelerating basically the system as a means of staving off a uh, disaster you know there there's a there's a really kind of um you know a rich discourse there that can turn into i think um something that in terms of knowledge translation is transformative but you're right to point out that it's not per se on people's radar and you know i i i do uh, you know i think also about like Um, The controversial and utterly flawed film Planet of Humans, which reduces the question down to just like population, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And makes an argument that sounds like it comes from Thanos, that infinite growth on a finite planet is suicide, Mm -hmm. and less must now be the new more. Uh, can can I just Cameron, it, you know can yeah, I just yeah. that
1: quickly? Because that's an, that's
0: yeah. a, a great example.
1: I haven't actually seen the film because this, the second the reviews came out, I thought, okay, I'm just going to avoid this. Um, but I understand that argument, and it's it's uh, of course like the, the language of population control is like it's ridiculous, it's anti-feminist, it's it's euro Euro and American centric, and it also it, it it makes a category error. So if you just compare like the per capita use of resources between a place like Haiti and the United States, the, 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 differential is in the range of 18 to 20%. So it makes, it makes to my it's a scale, it's a scale rift, right? To say that, that there's this average per capita unit on earth. And so the reproductive like the, that, that the politics of energy transition and ecological justice, that it resides in the wombs of women. That's so fucked up to me. Uh, when it's, it's far more logical in my mind to think, well, we should re- redistribute the ways in which, which those resources fall on the bodies and burdens and uh uh and lives of of very very different kinds of places on earth so that suddenly like the average american suddenly has you know 10% less resources to hand and the the average haitian has 10% more like i don't hear that i don't hear that language circulating in in the in the politics of energy transition as much as i i think a lot of us would like to and it would do very, very quickly, it would do just as much. It would produce just as much ecological, racial uh, and environmental justice as uh, as as something like, you know, this insane this insane notion that that like, you know, that
0: that uh, the future hinges on population control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's Brian Con rightly called this a form of eco fascism. You have people like Greg Grandin talking about the ways in which climate anxiety And, you know, climate refugees in in particular is producing this kind of race realism that really is just about a, you know, a settler colonial logic of deciding who should have access to these resources and who should not. It really reinforces, um, you know, things like, I mean, the El Paso shooting perpetrator who argued in his manifesto that these extractive companies are heading the destruction of our our environment and that the, the answer is depopulation. But depopulation uh, uh, that is carefully calculated on the basis of this kind of race realism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I think
1: Andreas Malm's new book with the Zeichen Collective, which just came out, um, it, 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 I'm so thankful for the, for the research that, di- that they did in that book because one, uh, among, uh, and <laughs> among other things they, they make legible the ways in which the, 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 the language of climate denialism, which marked the right, um, and especially, you know, xenophobic populist right-wing governments for for the past thirty years has actually shifted towards a kind of climate um, uh, supremacy, right? Which is to say, like the nation, it's it, it the nations on earth that will be affected less by climate change are those that will inherit um, the the uh, the benefits of you know two hundred years of of exploitation. And those that suffer are destined to do so for racial reasons. I mean that language is coming, and that kind of eco-fascist language is something to take note of and I think critique. And I think it actually does exactly start with, with um, a shift away from, a shift away from like the historicity of, of development, uh, towards a kind of ahistorical concept of of uh, and an, an, an uh, ahistorical concept of
0: antinatalism. Hmm, exactly yeah and i'm going to be discussing uh that book uh white skin black fuel with imra zeman in my next episode um sad. yeah so i'm looking forward to that um, um but to get back to your book and in particular this distinction that you just um uh, uh made between planetarity and globality um I, I i think i'm using those terms correctly uh you know you're you're writing the book that capital and what you call the elemental alterity of the earth are intersecting all the time Um, and that the modality of that intersection it's kind of modal piecemeal diffuse quality means that any self-certain concept of the world is not really possible right like we you know reducing it down to these kinds of concepts is um a helpful but distracting kind of configuration and and you say there's there's this distinction that we need to need to make between planetary and which are, in your account, two interactive streams of world making. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, uh, you know, I, I won't make you summarize the distinction. If I'm reading you correctly, planetarity is about these like physical systems that constitute the life and death reality of existence on Earth, while globality is kind of more of a social cultural condition that is mediated, narrated, con- constituted through culture. Um, but, like, in the book, rather than just theorizing it, Um, And, you know, I asked you something similar when you spoke with me before for the podcast that, you know, there's for you, clearly, there's something valuable in field work in providing a more situated, if more tangled and protracted reflection on uh, um, what's happening. And I guess I wonder in this context, how you imagine your embodied method in the book, overcoming this unproductive uh, category error of maybe separating planetarity and globality, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to talk about how philosophy, uh, how, how fieldwork informs like a, the, the forms of philosophy that I'm trying to, to think with um, and why I think it's so important to why I think it's so important to, to think with the elemental alterity of any kind of encounter you have in the world as the as the as the the relation from which co- categories and concepts start to take shape and meaning, as opposed to those categories and concepts giving shape and meaning to your encounter um, and so i i mean i i've i've spoken to some of the traditions that i'm really interested in continuing to to learn from earlier in this conversation but um i uh i i had the pleasure of, of being in conversation with um a number of scholars in the uk recently including michelle bastian who put together a special issue of the journal parallax on on field philosophy about two years ago um, and I learned in those conversations, uh, 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 so one of the, one of the scholars who's, who's invited to that special issue is Isabel Stengers. And, um, in reading Isabel Stengers contribution to that, that provocation to think, in other words, like what, what can philosophy learn from the field, how to do philosophy in the field, as opposed to thinking the field as this repository of data that you then bring back to either a lab or an office and translate into, into ready to hand frameworks, um i learned from or I, I don't know if learning is the right word i it became more apparent to me through Stengers' account in that special issue um the ways in which the body as a as a, a form of what um jackie alexander calls body praxis uh is is hypertuned to all of the sensations and all of the currents and forces that uh situate the body and give the body a sense of place to begin with and how um how thinking with those experiential modes of being in place also open up more most importantly to what can't be what can't be known or held to a category in a in a place, any place, but especially in a place like Greenland, where the the scale of forces and the stakes of those forces and the and the the epistemic concern for what those forces portend for a future are just so 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 massive and so terrifying and also so utterly beautiful that you can't help but stop and think um, there's something there's there's something here for me to understand but not to necessarily translate but that understanding. I think is a kind of, it's a practice of relationality that is is already in the Caribbean tra- tradition, especially in the work of Edouard Glissant and the poetics of relation. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of ethic of relating to um, both human and non-human forces, human and non-human entities, and, uh, you know, forms of being in the world that uh, for me are just it, just, it just promises a very beautiful way of, of being with. And I think that, that that tradition is the one I'm trying to make commensurate with the planetarity that I'm invoking in the book through Spivak um, on the one hand. But of course, my book is not just about developing that that ethic. It's also about pairing it or thinking about like how it might relate to a critique of capital. And so, uh, as I said in, the, in, in an earlier part of this conversation, I think you know, Spivak makes this distinction between planetarity and globality, and she says that the, that the globe is, is essentially a grid, and it's the kind of thing that appears on your computer. Um, that is to say, it's, it's, of course, an imposition onto the planet, but it is not a fiction. It does, it's a real abstraction. It does work all the time. We know it does work all the time. It, it actually does continue to produce a world, and that world is interactive with the planet and the elemental forces of the planet. But it can't be reduced to the planet, right? Because it it because it's at odds with the planet. But they're both worlds, so they're both modal positions or postures. I, I'm I'm arguing, the elemental, the planetary, the global. They're 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 modal postures. That is to say, ways of orienting towards the very notion of world building, as well as the agent of that world building, that are interactive. We know that because uh, that's the whole point of the terminal, right? It gathers stuff drawn out from the earth. Every every email we send every uh every everything we we encounter at a supermarket like we're just we're inundated with stuff drawn from the earth but not encountered as such so of course they interact but it's the contradiction between those two postures and the very different epistemological and philosophical traditions required to think them on their own terms that i'm trying to bring together in the book which is again why i think it's a bit schizophrenic but i'm the promise here is like we if we try to bring these traditions together and think in these two utterly incommensurate modes as critics right something else might happen beyond the expected conclusions that you get when you just when you just operate in one of those two worlds and i guess that's i guess that's what i'm trying to do in this book if uh, is like not come to conclusions that are already that are ready to hand given the frameworks I that we that we have available to us you know like which is not to say that I come to any concrete conclusions at all, but, but I do think that the, well, I guess, I, yeah, I mean, I just think that this is the, I learned this from, I mean, some of the, so the very concept of energy impasse in the way that my, my friends and colleagues and comrades have been theorizing it for the past, uh, 12 years or so is about an, an epistemological illegibility, right? like the impasse is not just like oh we're stuck it's very difficult to move past this point the impasse is actually about the uh the unthinkability of what comes on the other side of impasse because the terms by which you encounter and worry about impasse are so hard coded into the very thing that produced it that it's very very difficult to to jump onto the other side and then and then you know as it were like the owl of minerva draw the world into this new this new mode and of course, that's like a that's a that's a political and philosophical problem that's like at the heart of Marx's early philosophy of history in the 18th Brumaire. And of course, it's there for everybody to experience and feel very sad and frustrated by, in uh, in Benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history. Like I just, I'm trying to bring that back. I'm trying to bring that kind of the the, the what's exciting and challenging and complex about that epistemological the epistemological nature of impasse to the the political and revolutionary challenges that uh, that that are occasioned and nominated by climate change and to my mind one way to do that is by thinking seriously about elemental alterity um, as the as as the the, the the grounds from which something like a, 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 you know a, a massive but also piecemeal and gentle but also aggressive and urgent transition could unfold that won't just result into ready- to- hand prefigurative categories such as you know a kind of workerism or the you know the liberal individual or um some of these positions that seem to just always get really really loud and take take over the conversation because because um because they are the arbiters of reason in various traditions and i think that the arbiter of reason here ought not to be those traditions necessarily
0: it ought to be something like the elemental alterity of the earth itself i i mean absolutely i kind of feel the same way and i think you um provide a convincing case for that in in the history that you offer you know like you're historicizing not just ways of being spatially as you put it like the the means through which the built environment has kind of grown behind our backs according to this kind of logic of just kino capitalism or you know david harvey talks about like just capitalism not considering the the implications of, of development you know but it also um, has a way in which like it, the history that you provide shows that our ways of being temporally in relationship to the future um, are like wholly subsumed in some ways by fossil capital like um, you know you talk about the ability of shell famously to kind of predict the future um, and how that is You know, like a a social constructivist account Mm -hmm. of that historical moment would prioritize Shell's, as you put it, uniquely generative role. Like that would be the Michael Pollan book on like Shell's prediction of of oils, you know. Because it makes that world that it inherits. Yeah, exactly. It's like this really tidy uh, uh, account, you know. And in the same way, like last week tonight with John Oliver recently did an episode on PFAS, the Mm so-called forever chemicals Mm -hmm. um, that DuPont has marketed as Teflon and so on. these these chemicals um, exist into eternity. They're in all of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And there's no no way in some ways of conceiving of the temporality of their duration. Like the epistemological uh, illegibility, as you put it, of PFAS is like palpable. Mm -hmm. Um, It just becomes a, a means of, yeah, trying to encounter the otherness of that in ways that aren't perhaps just like tidy and rational and provide easy answers. You know, like Benjamin Bratton wrote an article about TED Talks a long time ago called, We Need to Talk About TED. And it's like this brilliant takedown of how easy answers are the problem, you know?
1: Yeah, Um, I I, I love teaching the, he then goes on to give a TED Talk, doesn't he? He gives like the anti-TED Talk, TED Talk. I just think (laughs) it's a brilliant sabotage of a form internal to
0: itself. Mm-hmm. and it seems to me you're in some ways trying to productively sabotage the the books that you say you've been um, you know guided by, but also frustrated by. Like you're you're you know you're suggesting that something more meaningful happened when Shell developed this ability to predict the future. Like you argue um, that it was about actually the emergence of concepts of energy, environment, and duration. That slowly became hegemonic through finance, capital speculation, um, that that's what that moment in the early 70s represented. Um, And I guess, you know, I wanted to ask you to elaborate on that historic moment because you suggest that it was as much about learning to speculate as it was about the company unlearning ways that it had previously projected the future. Um, you say specifically that it was about a movement from data to theory mm-hmm. in the machinations of managers in what ways are we still living in and through that relationship to volatility and crisis so that that
1: chapter took me two and a half years to write it and I'm still not sure I've got it right but I think that there's I think that, that so the point I'm trying to make there by going back to the archives of shell scenario planning in the 1970s is that um, Pierre Wach, who becomes the, 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 the department leader of scenarios planning and overhauls the, the ways in which they do what they do, and then becomes a kind of guru of uh, futurism um, in various business schools uh, across the world because of a book call, uh, called called uh, the, the Art of the Long View by, I think his name is Peter Schwartz who became the next uh, scenarios leader and revered vach so this th- so what what vach does in the 1970s is um in some ways pat himself on the back for insisting that the, the the hermeneutic of shell until that point was predicated on looking at existing data and then expecting more of the same in the future without disruption and without uh, qualitative shift in the in the logic of futurity, and so this is why this example in 1973 is is infamous because Bach is understands himself as able to anticipate the oil crisis before anybody else, um, and Shell, as a consequence, shifts their investments largely to North Sea oil, and that's another story. Um, in advance of of the crisis and essentially uh, hedges its its losses as a consequence but what he does when he's narrating this and you have to take this we have to take this with a grain of salt of course because he's both he's he's largely just um, among other things you know boosting his own reputation and, and legacy but I think there's something really interesting here because he does insist over and over again that what he tries to what he tries to he tries to destroy what he call he says he just he wants to destroy the worldview of the manager in shell and puts them through these kind of like (laughs) re-education camps, these long, long sessions, which he then then narrates in the 1980s in these two famous articles in the Harvard Business Review. Um, And what he tries to get the business or the managers to understand is that, is that uh, oil is not just one commodity among others. It doesn't behave the same way as other kinds of commodities. It's something like the fabric or the tuning fork for the unfolding of a future that it itself is a major participant and determinant in. Um, and so in other words, I, so in that, in, in that chapter, I'm trying to argue that, um, that Vach is intuiting the, the recursive nature of oil. Once it becomes something like a gold standard before there's any, before that language is available to him and anybody else is speaking about oil in that way, but functionally the way that he repositions oil in the theory of transition and futurity, if functionally it, it, he repositions it as a source of recursivity so that, um, so that it becomes illogical to do essentially what the Rand corporation is doing at the same time, which is to use a cybernetic method for interpreting the future based on existing facts based on, in other words, historical tendencies. Um, And instead, he says, the the computers won't save us. And a cybernetic logic that projects a future based on the past will always mistake uh, tendencies for promise and, uh, and not be able to prepare themselves for crisis because now oil has become a very different kind of substance, right? It's become kind of like, you know, of course, I'm reading this backwards but effectively he's positioning oil as as a world-building substance and one that is that will bend various national governments to a kind of behavioralism that you wouldn't be able to anticipate if you thought that it was simply a question of the price of this one commodity in relation to others as opposed to this one pri- this one commodity regulating the relation between all others right so my argument is like that that that's still that's still the kind of model of futures planning and scenarios planning and anticipation that marks most of the major organizations responsible for, for writing, writing the, 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 the versions of the future that we ought to worry about. And I'm talking, I'm talking about the IPCC, I'm talking about Shell itself, um, the world energy outlook, So in all of those kinds of those genres of writing the future, the, 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 the thing that can't be thought or the, the 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 epistemic position from which the future is thought in those genres is contingent on imagining that capital itself is is the agent of world-making and so it's in, it's in, inconceivable to plot a future without capital as the as the fabric and my argument is like since the 1970s the fabric of capital has been intimate to its energy deepening and its energy deepening is bound up with as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation Every year, exponentially more and more, not just raw, not just raw materials, but raw materials that are variously
0: functionalized as energetic in- inputs. It is an incontestable thing, right? This, this this logic of compound growth, um, yeah, it 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 it's all consuming in ways that you know require, as as you say, like uh, the need for knowledge, new regimes of like legibility, the need for intervention rather than just patience, and an awareness of how infrastructures are. You know, um, that they, they can be understood in spite of the ways in which they're kind of deliberately concealed. And I think you know like uh, this is maybe the the last question I'll ask you, but you know there is certainly a way in which the global pandemic, this you know uh, historic global event, has caused us to be- become conscious of the kind of systemic edges of society. Mm-hmm. And, and And so you know, you have people like Naomi Klein writing in The Intercept, you know, what becomes possible when you recognize you're in crisis, when you've hit sufficient catastrophe? Mm. Uh, Bill McKibben on, you know, the New York New Yorker Radio Hour talking about this renewed sense that the time and the pace of change are important. You know, you got Elizabeth Colbert in the same episode expressing some kind of hope about the politicizing of like air travel in the wake of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense in reading your book is that you don't really share their sense of, Hope that this suspension of the system is transformative. Like you really seem to suggest that we're going to snap back into an acceleration of things, and that we need to recognize the lasting effects of that over you know uh, over the, the long term. Could you comment on the the COVID moment and how it has maybe uh, pried open certain kinds of you know reimaginings? I mean, there's this notion of mass resignation. D- do you see hope in this moment or, or less than that?
1: Well, d- yeah, it depends on which day of the week. <laughs> like most people, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I have a healthy amount of skepticism and pessimism in the book. I'm trying to say like that story is going to be written at the terminal. And so um, what happens at the terminal is informed by other kinds of scenes of contestation. So I, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, uh, in addition to being in- enormously confused and worried, in March and April of 2020. Um, I was also having conversations with, with colleagues about how we might have to rewrite our entire curriculum because um, it seemed for a moment like the inevitability of what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism extending infinitely out into the future suddenly was punctured. Um, we had something like, a, 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 for, for, a, for a moment, we had universal basic income in places where that was unimaginable. Right, we had we had checks being sent out to poor people and disadvantaged people, um, just to keep just to keep their lives livable for the moment, and that of course makes then the, the the demand for such a thing more legible and more tangible. Um, at the same time, of course, we had a, 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 a massive drop in the consumption of oil in various places on earth, massive drop in the consumption of coal, but it was a, yeah, it was a, it clearly it was a blip. And in the con- in the wake of that, we had a, an elastic snap back to something like an intensification of the inherent racial violence of essential work, so-called essential work, being positioned at the front lines of the virus with no with no capacity or agency to 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 refuse, um, so that a, a different segment of the population, a different class, could continue to produce hyperactively from the space of their own home um, with less exposure and less risk. And so in some ways, like the, I think that the crisis also, of course, just amplifies existing inequalities, violences, risks, invisibilities um, that I I think are gonna take a long time for us to reckon with. And uh, of course there was a moment in the summer of 2020 when it was being reckoned with. I think that the, for me, one of the most, my my image of hope is the burning of the fucking police precinct in Minnesota in the summer of 2020 when that suddenly become when that suddenly becomes a reasonable form of protest a reasonable thing for a large population to imagine has to happen in order to even though of course the ble- the burning of the police precinct had nothing to do with climate change on the face of things it is an infrastructural critique and it's a form of it's a form of making reasonable um that You know two months before three months before most commentators mostly you know the liberal commentators in the us would have thought was deeply unreasonable but that wasn't how it was interpreted and for me that's an image of hope (laughs) um that so yeah it depends on what day you ask me i do think that it goes back like my my radical skepticism and radical utopianism are interactive like i think they are it is for a lot of people um but i still i want to insist that like the future is going to be plotted through the terminal and by that, I mean both the terminal logistical spaces that line major cities all over the earth where the raw materials drawn out from the earth collect before they're abstracted into forms of world building on the one hand, and then the kinds of landscapes that are nominated to tell the story of the future, like the grand, like the Greenland ice sheet, where there's a lot more happening beyond just melting ice, which we haven't had a chance to talk about. Though two years ago when we first spoke, we did talk a lot about that. But the question of indigenous sovereignty and the ways in which... The ways in which climate change actually uh, unlocks certain kinds of imaginaries, and also makes unreasonable inherited notions of futurity, um, are also things or stories that 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 unfold and are made legible and thinkable and reasonable at the terminal. And so that's that's kind of what I want to. That's that's where I locate my my hope and my pessimism is at the terminal.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I do encourage people to go back and listen listen to that conversation. It's a long time ago. Yeah, one of the first episodes I recorded. Um, and uh, to kind of just, you know, not just for that specific section, but also to hear the ways in which your thinking has developed and, and, and become, in some ways, as you've, as you've said, kind of more schizophrenic. Um, and, and to me, that's the, that's the main reason to pick up the book. You know, it doesn't provide easy answers, but that's, that's entirely the point. Um, so I, that's, I, that's, I, so kind, I, that's so kind of you to say and
1: I, and of course, I really appreciate the opportunity to think with you. Um, these conversations with you mean a lot to me and I, and as I'm listening to, through the podcast too, I want to like really applaud and thank you for all the work that you're doing. I, I can hear it in everybody's uh, relation to your to your thought that it's it's generative and generous and, and it's, a, it's it's a privilege.
0: It's a lovely thing for you to say. I appreciate it.